Hi, this is Rachel Hine and Rosie Tillis, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for a yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after our podcast for a brief message from our sponsors. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hits lecture series talking about the eyelid. Just remember, this is a quick hit high yield lecture series with facts taken directly from the in-service from the past five to eight years. Rosie, why don't you get us started? All right. So we're going to talk about eyelid anatomy, exam and measurements, ptosis, blepharoplasty, and complications. So we'll start with anatomy. The layers of the eyelid include the conjunctiva, Mueller's muscle, the levator muscle, orbital fat, septum, the roof, which is the retroorbicularis oculi fat, the orbicularis oculi, and the skin. Mueller's muscle lies below the levator, and the insertion is to the superior border of the tarsus, and it is visualized during repair. Whitnall's ligament is superior to the levator. We can also divide the eyelid into the anterior and posterior lamella. So the anterior lamella consists of skin and orbicularis muscle. The posterior lamella includes the tarsal ligamentous sling consisting of the tarsal plate, the medial and lateral canthal tendons, and the capsulopalpebral fascia and the conjunctiva. The orbital septum or the middle lamella separates the anterior and posterior lamella. There are seven bones in the orbit. The medial orbital wall is formed mainly by the ethmoid bone. The lacrimal bone, palatine bone, and the lesser wing of the sphenoid also contribute to the medial orbital wall. The orbital floor is made up of the maxilla medially and the zygoma anteriorly. And the distance from the orbital rim to the apex is about 45 millimeters. And that becomes important when you're fixing an orbital floor fracture. The fat compartments, there are fat pads posterior to the septum and anterior to the levator. There are two fat pads in the upper lid, the central and nasal. And there are three fat pads in the lower lid, the medial, central, and lateral. The inferior oblique is found between the medial and central fat compartments of the lower eyelid. The inferior oblique receives its innervation from the oculomotor nerve and it moves the eye in external rotation and elevation. The inferior oblique can be entrapped in orbital floor fractures. So you can test this by having the patient look upward and outward. Voluntary eyelid animation happens from the zygomatic branch of the facial nerve. This innervates the extracanthal orbicularis. Involuntary eyelid movement and closure like blinking happens from the buccal branch of the facial nerve. This innervates the intercanthal orbicularis. The common canaliculus enters the lacrimal sac posterior to the medial canthal tendon. The medial canthal tendon is formed by the pretarsal muscles and originates anterior and superior to lacrimal crest. The deep head or pretarsal extends posterior to the lacrimal sac. The levator lies superior to the medial canthal tendon. The nasal lacrimal duct drains beneath the inferior turbinate. And during eye closure, the lacrimal puncta closes due to forced positioning and tears are milked medial to lateral. This in turn shortens the canaliculi and opens the sac. Sensation to the eye is provided by the infraorbital nerve to the lower eyelid and the lateral palpebral branch from the infraorbital nerve in the superior lateral portion of the upper eyelid. The infratrochlear nerve innervates the medial portions of the upper and lower eyelid and the lacrimal nerve innervates the upper eyelid. The zygomatic facial branch provides sensation to the lateral fat pad of the lower eyelid. The orbital malar ligament is the anatomic basis of the tear trough. It's an osteocutaneous ligament arising from the medial portion of the maxilla between the palpebral and orbital portions of the muscle inferior lateral to the medial canthus. 
This is released to access the midface for suborbicular fat redraping through a transconjunctival approach. And it attaches to the orbicular muscle of the eye at the orbital rim. It separates the lower eye from the midface. Fillers should be placed inferior to the tear trough ligament and placing them superiorly to the tear trough ligament serves to emphasize lower eyelid fat, which is suboptimal. Lockwood ligament supports the globe and the orbital septum contains the orbital contents. We're often tested on tears and the um, secretions within them. So tears are a trilaminar fluid. Mucin secreting goblet cells form a precorneal layer. This promotes dispersion of the overlying aqueous layer. The aqueous middle layer is secreted by the lacrimal gland and is composed of water and proteins. The aqueous layer promotes osmotic regulation and control of infectious agents. The mebomian glands prevent evaporation of tears and provide the outer lipid layer. Dysfunction of these glands can lead to dry eye. Great. Thanks, Rosie. We'll next go over the physical exam or some components of it when evaluating an eyelid. First is the MRD or the marginal reflex distance one. This is the distance in millimeters from the light reflex to the patient's cornea to the level of the upper eyelid margin with the patient's in primary gaze. Normal is greater than 2.5 and less than 2.5 is evidence of ptosis. You can measure exophthalmos from the interior border of the globe and most anterior and portion of the lateral rim. Exophthalmos is defined as greater than 18 millimeters from this point and enophthalmos is less than 14 millimeters. There is the eyelid snapback test to look at horizontal laxity of the lower lid. Greater than six millimeters is considered lax. If this is the case, you could do a wedge resection. If they have a positive canthal tilt or canthopexy and those with a negative canthal tilt must undergo a lateral canthopexy. And for minimal laxity, the orbicularis can be repositioned for laxity of one to two millimeters. Intercanthal distance is best approximated by orbital fissure width. The Shermer test evaluates tear production and tear breakup time. And Herring's law is important to know when you're evaluating patients for blepharoplasty. And this law states that equal and simultaneous innervation of both levator palpebrae muscles occur. So when one eye has ptosis, the brain signals both eyelids to raise and it can hide ptosis in the contralateral eye. To test this, you can either use a patch or phenylephrine drops. And so you'll place phenylephrine drops into the mortotic eye to stimulate the Mueller's muscle to raise the eyelid. In turn, the afferent signal to raise the eyelids decrease. And if the contralateral eyelid falls over the next 10 to 15 minutes, then you'll likely need a bilateral ptosis repair. Bell's phenomenon is the upper and outer movement of the eye on eye closing. And this is a protective mechanism. Most all of us have, it can be absent in up to 15% of patients. The absence can predilect the patient to corneal ulcers after a blepharoplasty. Horner syndrome, if you remember, is blepharotosis, pupil meiosis, and facial anhydrosis. And the apex of the brow should be at the lateral limbus of the eye and forward gaze, and sometimes we're tested on this. Finally, patients with thyroid disease will have evidence of proptosis, diplopia, puffy, swollen, injected eyes, and eyelid lag. A few definitions to go through. The first one is blepharochalasis. This is thin upper eyelid tissue, painless edema of the eyelids, baggy appearance, and often these patients will have levator dehiscence. Dermatocholasis is loosening of the eyelid skin with fat protrusion. Blepharophimosis is a form of congenital ptosis. These patients will present with ptosis, telecanthus, phimosis, and large epicanthal folds with epicanthus inversus. Correction involves a form of Z-plasties, transnasal wiring of the medial canthal tendon, ptosis correction with frontalis suspension. 
Epiblepharon is a condition in children seen with vertical eyelashes as a result of excess pretarsal muscle and skin overriding the margin of the eyelid. And this often affects the lower lids. You should observe for several years in these patients. And if this does not correct, you can shorten the anterior lamella and entropion is inward rotation of the eyelid margin. Going a little bit more into ptosis. This is defined by how much of the upper limbus is covered by the lid margin at rest and at forward gaze. Usually it's about one to two millimeters. So senile or involutional ptosis is common in the elderly. It is a progressive attenuation of the levator aponeurosis, otherwise known as levator dehiscence. Signs of senile or involutional ptosis include an elevated tarsal crease of over seven millimeters, thinned upper eyelids, lid droop with downward gaze. Treatment of senile involutional ptosis is levator advancement or plication to the tarsal plate. You can also evaluate them for a skin excision. The most important consideration in ptosis is the levator function. So if someone has good levator function with over 10 millimeters with mild to moderate ptosis, you can reposition the levator aponeurosis to the tarsal plate. Every three millimeters of levator advancement results in one millimeter of elevation. To achieve the proper contour for levator advancement, you should place primary lifting suture at the vertical plane of the mid pupil. If the levator function is good with less than two millimeters of ptosis, you can perform the Facinella Servant, which is a posterior conjunctival approach to correct mild ptosis without levator disinsertion. Plication only works if it is not dehist. This does not remove any excess skin of the eyelid fold, but the levator aponeurosis reinsertion can include skin resection. If they have good levator function and response of the ptosis with just phenylephrine, then you'll want to perform a mullerectomy. If a person has a levator response of five to 10 millimeters, then they can undergo a levator resection or advancement, a resection for ptosis over three millimeters and an advancement for mild to moderate ptosis, which is, a, again, you'll do a three millimeter advancement for every one millimeter of ptosis. If they have a levator response of less than five millimeters, you'll do a frontalis suspension. This is especially helpful if they have severe ptosis. The autologous fascia lata has the lowest long-term recurrence rates and complication rates. Congenital ptosis is most commonly a result of localized myogenic dysgenesis, and most causes are idiopathic. In these kids, you should obtain an MRI initially to rule out any nerve compression from external forces like a tumor, particularly when it presents acutely or subacutely in a child over one year of age. They will often have good levator function, but if they have minimal ptosis and good levator function, you can use a bacinella and this may alter the lid contour. A Mueller resection can also be used for minimal ptosis, but cannot achieve symmetry and you cannot make intraoperative corrections. You can also do a resection advancement of the levator aponeurosis to achieve better symmetry and you'll need function of the levator for over five millimeters. Right, Rosie. And mostly in these congenital ptosis cases, they're actually quite severe. So you'll end up doing a frontalis suspension. A few notes about blepharoplasty. In the Asian lid management, 50% of the population has a general lack of insertion of the levator aponeurosis into the dermis. This causes a lack of supratarsal fold. The epiphoria is due to excess pretarsal skin and orbicularis muscle at the lower eyelid. A transconjunctival approach versus a transcutaneous approach can be used in the lower eyelids. A transconj bluff preserves the middle lamella, i.e. the septum, and has less incidence of scleral show and more difficult access to the lateral fat compartment. This can be used for fat pad reduction and will not violate the septum. 
Incision should be placed between four and five millimeters below the tarsal border or eight millimeters below the lid margin. Transcutaneous bluff is easier and more effective for blending the lid cheek junction and transposing fat. Lower eyelid laxity is treated with a lower bluff and canthopexy. This decreases the risk for atropion. If the snapback test is slow on the lower eyelid, you may perform a horizontal shortening of the lower eyelid and a canthopexy. Methods of canthopexy include repositioning of the inferior limb lateral retinaculum on the orbital rim or suturing the lateral orbicularis to the orbital rim. These all support the lateral canthus and the variety of structures in the lower orbital rim. Lateral canthoplasty treats lower eyelid laxity and protects against malposition. If there's mild eyelid laxity of one to two millimeters, can do an orbicularis repositioning. All right, next we'll talk about complications. In general, blepharoplasty complications include asymmetry for Asian eyelid surgery. The most common complication for a lower blepharoplasty is lower eyelid malposition. And carrying the incision past the punctum in an upper blepharoplasty can cause webbing of the nasal skin. Dry eye is also a risk of blepharoplasty and preoperative risks of dry eye syndrome after blepharoplasty include minimal exophthalmos, moderate scleral show, proptosis, hypotonia, maxillary hypoplasia, and four eyelid surgery. LASIK is another risk factor for dry eye syndrome. It creates a corneal flap that interrupts the long ciliary nerves of the trigeminal nerve and results in decreased sensation of the corneal reflex arc. So you lose that compensatory blink. Extropion is a huge risk factor for lower eyelid surgery. So if this is diagnosed, if eyelid malposition and epiphoria is diagnosed in the early postoperative period, massages are recommended, massages and taping. Like Rosie said, a transconjunctival approach decreases the risk for lower eyelid malposition and in some studies has a 0% risk for ectropion postoperatively, whereas subciliary has as high as a 25%. Ectropion can be due to a variety of things, including involutional, which is horizontal laxity, cicatricial, which is vertical shortening of the anterior posterior lamella and septum, and neurogenic from paralysis of the orbicularis muscle. Risk factors of ectropion include negative vector, which is when the orbital rim is retropositioned relative to the vertical plane of the cornea, excessive skin resection, horizontal laxity of the tarsoligamentous sling, aggressive imbrication of the orbital septum, Graves' disease with exophthalmos, persistent edema, and hematoma. Scarring between the capsulopalpebral fascia and septum causes cicatricial ectropion in the lower lid. And involutional entropion and ectropion can be distinguished by the animation of the orbicularis oculi. This is caused by orbicularis dysfunction of the preceptal portion, disinsertion, loss of, and loss of eyelid support. Lower eyelid ectropion after a burn can be treated with full thickness skin grafting and release of tissues even early after the burn. Involutional ectropion, like we talked about, is treated with a canthoplasty and wedge excision, and neurogenic ectropion can be treated with gold weights. You can also have lateral compartment fullness after an upper blepharoplasty, and this can be due to the descending lacrimal glands. So the lateral fat compartments are in the lower eyelid, not in the upper eyelid, and sometimes they'll try to trick you with that. Hyphema is another complication, and this is a traumatic hemorrhage into the anterior chamber of the eye. This can result in increased ocular pressure, and treatment includes acetazolamide and corticosteroid drops. Lagophthalmos is a complication of upper eyelid blepharoplasty. And if the patient received epinephrine or phenylephrine drops, AKA an alpha adrenergic agonist, lagophthalmos may be a result of activation of the Mueller's muscle, also known as the superior tarsal muscle. And we were tested on that last year. Central facial numbness after a blepharoplasty is likely from supertrochlear nerve injury. Remember that this courses through the corrugator and innervates the central forehead skin. The deep superorbital supplies the forehead periosteum. 
And ptosis can be common after a blepharoplasty. Common causes include postoperative edema of the eyelids and hemorrhage into Mueller's muscle. These complications typically resolve over time. So reassurance and observation with frequent follow-up examinations are the most appropriate response. And traumatic aponeurotic injuries after a blepharoplasty can be evidenced by ptosis, iris shadow, elevated tarsal crease, and good levator function. This should be treated with early reattachment of the levator muscle. And finally, some severe complications include increased intraocular pressure from a retrobulbar hematoma. This can lead to blindness and can be diagnosed after an orbital fracture repair or blepharoplasty. The patients will present with a steady severe pain in the globe and orbit, which can have, they can have sparkles and flashes in their eye and appear and see a window shade being pulled over the lower half of their visual field. Physical exam in the affected patient will show visual loss associated with a pupillary defect, which is the loss of pupillary reaction to light. Treatment includes an acute lateral canthotomy to relieve pressure, followed by intraoperative exploration to stop the hemorrhage. So the nasal lacrimal duct. Evaluation of the nasal lacrimal duct can be done via Jones test. The first step evaluates lacrimal outflow under normal physiologic conditions. So fluorocetin dye is instilled into the conjunctival cornice and the dye is recovered in five minutes by asking the patient to blow their nose. If there is no dye, then perform the Jones 2. The Jones 2 is when residual fluorocetin is flushed out from the conjunctival sac. So you ask the patient to expel the drainage from their pharynx. And no dye means that there's complete obstruction of the conjunctival sac and the conjunctival duct. Congenital tearing likely arises from the nasal lacrimal duct, and this is treated with massage and antibiotic drops until about 13 months. At that point, you'll probe the nasal lacrimal duct and do a celastic intubation followed by a dacrocystorhinostomy. Postoperative obstruction of the nasal lacrimal duct is treated with a dacrocystorhinostomy as well for negative Jones 1s and 2, which signifies a distal obstruction past the lacrimal sac. Obstruction at the canalicular level or proximal obstruction, you will treat that with a conjunctival dacrocystostomy. And for obliteration of the sac, you'll also undergo a conjunctival rhinostomy and intubation of the tear sac, which is a dacrocystostomy. A conjunctival rhinostomy is used in patients who have obliteration or absence of the tear sac completely. Some miscellaneous facts to close out this lecture. So blepharospasm is frequent blinking and squeezing of the eyelids. You can treat this with administration of Botox. Botox-induced ptosis is ptosis of the levator muscle. You'll treat this with alpha-adrenergic drops like aproclonidine to elevate Mueller's muscle. This is a really, really common test question, alpha-adrenergic drops. Botox itself prevents the release of acetylcholine into the presynaptic membrane. Medial canthal degloving injuries can result in telecanthus, ptosis, and epiphoria from canaliculi injuries. And you should initially repair the telecanthus and canaliculi, followed by ptosis repair at three to six months. Awesome. Thanks, guys, for tuning into our high-yield lecture series called Quick Hits. Stay tuned for more. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.